Okay, let's look at the let's look at the the parasha first from um, from the Pentateuch. Um, the name of this passage of scripture is Ba Haalot Ha. Everybody say Ba Haalot Ha. It's actually three words. It's one of those contractions. It means when you uh, like when you cause to go up, or uh, I think in the the NESB renders that as like when you. When you mount the lamps. That's the idea. It's in Numbers chapter 8, verse 1. So we can, we can begin there. Yeah, when, uh, it's um, Yahweh talking to Moses, telling him to tell his brother Aaron, who is the Kohen Gadol, the high priest, um, when you mount the lamps. And uh, who can tell me what the Hebrew word for lamp is? Menorah. Menorah, that's right. You know, when we say menorah, we think of the seven-branched candelabrum. Right? And that's what it is. In modern Hebrew, it's any lamp, though. So when you go home, you'll probably flick on a menorah. You, you have quite a few menorahs around your home. So when you think of that, that lampstand, think of a, a source of light. Think of something that illuminates the room so that you can navigate and uh, see where you're going. Now, this is, this is cool because Yeshua is our high priest in the order of Melchizedek. We talked about how to use a synonymous term, creatively, we could call that the, the Big M Agency, the Melchizedekian priesthood, the Big M Agency. And um, so things about Moses, who is a prophet, and things about Aaron, who is the high priest, will tell us things about Yeshua, who is the ultimate prophet and our ultimate high priest. So let's have a look at how Aaron's job description says something about our relationship with our, with our master. Um, in the book of Revelation, chapter 1, there's a mystery given. Do you guys like mysteries? Okay, so like he has this vision of Yeshua, and Yeshua is walking around in the middle of these seven menorahs. Golden menorahs. And, like, he, and Yohanan, John, having the vision, he's totally floored. I mean, like literally, he's face down on the floor. I'm overwhelmed with Yeshua's glory. And at the end of chapter 1, he says, and uh, as for that mystery about the seven golden menorahs, those are seven ecclesias. There's seven um, local congregations of uh, Yeshua's disciples. And specifically, there were seven, um, seven like, communities in, in um, Asia, Asia Minor, like Ephesus and a couple other cities. All right? So when you see a menorah, think you. As a, as a congregation, think us. We are, somehow the menorah is a picture of, of us as a congregation. And Aaron here is a picture of Yeshua. So uh, what does that tell us? In this construct, what's the, what's the high priest's job? And uh, what's the menorah's job? <laughs> yep. The menorah's job is to, to give light, to shine. Actually, the menorah itself doesn't shine. What does the shining? The oil. The oil, that's right. When the oil enters a state of combustion, then it throws heat, and it also uh, gives illumination. And whose job is it to fill up the candlestick with oil, to take care of it every day, to make sure it's throwing that light? And the priest, that's right, who is, in this case, uh, in, 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 in our situation, Yeshua. So I really love that picture. We're like a candlestick. Like, even like Genevieve was singing this morning as the Spirit was giving her that song. We're vessels. We're a vessel, just like the menorah held the oil. The oil is the Holy Spirit. 
And when His Holy Spirit is flowing through us and Yeshua is taking care of us as a congregation, we're shining for Him in Prince Albert. We're shining for Him in our province and country. So I like that. Yeshua's job and then our job. Our job is to shine and to be that vessel. Do you think maybe sometimes we have something to do with making sure we stay full of oil so we can, we can shine? Yeah, reading his word, absolutely. I think so. Yeshua, remember Yeshua used that parable about the virgins, and some of them didn't have enough oil, and then they, weren't, they like shut the doors on them and they weren't allowed into the wedding reception, which would be a big bummer, um, especially if you love weddings. And, uh, and some of them had enough oil. So definitely, we do have a part to play. Um, actually, I'll, I'll, share, I'll share a story with you. When I was 16 or 17, I was really seeking Yahweh about where to go in life. Like, you know, when you're 16, 17, 18, you're starting to ask some of the big questions. Uh, you have some choices before you that can affect your whole life, uh, career choices, etc. And one of the things he, he, he told me really clearly during that time period was he gave me that example of do you remember in John chapter 2? Uh, the wedding that ran out of wine? Disaster. And uh, Yeshua says, um, those big, those big uh, water pots, fill them all with water. You remember that? So they did their part. They filled them with water. And then Yeshua did his part, which was to miraculously turn it all into wine. I don't know if we'd call that a mini brewery or something. I don't know. But um, whatever the case may be, that's what he did. And um, I, I just, Yeshua spoke really clearly to me and said, your job is to fill, you're like a water pot, and your part is to fill yourself with the water of my word. So, you know, block time out of your schedule to read the Bible. Make studying the word a priority. And you know what? Maybe it won't seem very supernatural. Maybe it won't have that zing that wine has. But you know what? Just get it in you. And then I will do my part and I will turn that water into wine in my time. I, I will make it life-giving. I'll make it something that brings joy to many, so many people. I'll give it the zing that only I can give. That was the idea. And, um, and that was really encouraging to me because sometimes I read the Bible and I feel like I get nothing out of it. Seriously. I mean, sometimes it's just early in the morning and I'm exhausted. Sometimes it's spiritual attack and you just have to fight through it. But sometimes like, I just do not feel like reading the Word. It's just like even this week, I had a morning where I was like, this is brutal. I'm studying and I'm just so not connecting and I just want to go do anything but this right now. And Yeshua reminded me, you're the pot. Just put the water in you and I'll turn it into wine in my time. So that's our job, right? Get that oil in yourself and he's just going to light you up and he's going to make you shine in his time. So the menorah's job was to sit still and the high priest could fill it, and that can be our job too. Absolutely. Park ourselves before him, eh? Wow. That's especially challenging for those of us who are hyper. Absolutely. Um, in Numbers, just going to give you an overview of some other things in Numbers here. Numbers chapter 8, uh, verses 24 and 25, it, uh, it gives the, uh, the age for the Levites when they would start doing their job is 25. So basically, if you were from the tribe of Levi, when you hit 25, your dad would say, Cade, it's time for you to come with me to the tabernacle. We're, uh, we're going to start teaching you the ropes here. We're going to teach you all those 
uh, nitty-gritty fine details about how to how to how to sacrifice birds and where to put the blood, and you know that's some pretty some very detailed stuff. And uh, how, how does that apply to us? Well, here's something interesting. In this place, it says that they were to start at the age of 25. In another place in Scripture, it says that they were to start at the age of 30. Now, does this mean the Bible is false? Because in one place it says 25 and another 30? It looks like in a contradiction, maybe at first glance, but something you'll discover is when there seems to be contradictions in the Word, that is where there's insight for you. But you're going to have to dig in and study it out. Kind of like the burning bush. It's like, that bush is burning, but it's not consumed. This is a contradiction. I'm going to go take a closer look. And that's when Moses had his had a theophany. He had a revelation of Elohim. So, same for us. Um, you could understand that as saying that when a, Le- when a Levite guy hit the age of 25, his dad would take him to the tabernacle and he'd begin working, but he wasn't like a fully-fledged priest at that point. You could say that he was apprenticing under the older Levites and uh, learning, learning the trade. And I think that's, that's, a, that's, a, that's a great principle in general. Uh, you know, of course, in the trades, for instance, you have an apprenticeship. Um, if you are going into certain careers, you go to university. I, I think that's also very applicable. If, uh, if we have men who have received a calling from Yeshua to, uh, to devote their lives to preaching the gospel, to serving the body, to making disciples, there are men like that. And uh, what we see here is that we as we as Messianic communities can say, you know, you have a calling for Messiah, and uh, maybe you're at that 25-year age. Maybe not literally physically, but you're at that age. And, uh, and we're just, you know, we as communities can do this, and also those of us who are, who are elders or in congregational leadership, we can, we can begin intentionally mentoring people like that and, and phasing them in and giving them jobs to do, giving them responsibilities. And, and coaching them, giving them feedback, con- constructive feedback, etc. So, um, actually, I, I had a man call me this last week. This is, this is a hot topic, because I had a man call me this last week and said, you know, I, I want to study, and I don't know where to study. Where do I go? Is there, some, is there some messianic yeshiva that I can go to? Is there like a Jewish, messianic Jewish Bible college? And, uh, and I mean, there are a couple things out there, but we're, we're definitely at a, at a stage as a movement where... Uh, it's not as easy as you just go and plug in your four years at Bible college and seminary and you get a, cert- get a, get a degree and then they plug you into a church as an assistant rabbi or something. You know, it's just, it's not very smooth. And, and uh, I, I believe that the Father is calling us as Messianic communities to, to pioneer a new way of raising up leadership from our own midst and mentoring and coaching. So let's continue to do that. You know, so watch for who your young Levites are, for who your 25-year Levites are, and then take them through that process until you can just, until the Yeshua just turns them loose as, as 30-year-old Levites, to use, to use the metaphor. That's something that jumped out at me, of course, because I'm, I'm in that process myself, something in my mind. Um, in Numbers chapter 9, verse 2, have you ever, have you ever, uh, I, I'm sure we all know people who have like an ongoing dialogue in their mind. They're always thinking about something. And uh, I, I can be like that sometimes. And I'll be thinking about something and I'll say something. And then let's say Genevieve and I are driving. And then there'll be a sl- short pause. And then I'll start talking about something else that maybe is totally unrelated. But it's like, it's in my, in my thought stream. It's kind of fun sometimes to say, 
what were you just thinking before you said that? Like, how did you get on that topic? And it's like, well, I was thinking about this person, and then, and then they did that, and that reminded me of this, and, and things like that. And I wonder if our Creator isn't like that sometimes. Like, uh, like we talked about, He's the Noten HaTorah. He's always teaching us. There's this constant flow of thought that is available to us if we want to hear what he's thinking about, eh? And, uh, and, and we see this in this parasha. You'll, you won't get this in the English, so I'll point it out to you in the Hebrew. In uh, Numbers chapter 9, verse 2, okay, so 9 verse 1, it sets the context. It says, uh, Thus Yahweh spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai in the first month of the second year after they had come out of the land of Egypt, saying... And then in, in the NASB it says, Now let the sons of Israel observe the Passover. But in the Hebrew it says, And let the sons of Israel observe the Passover. How many people do you know that begin their sentences with and? And means you were something right, saying something right before that. And, yeah, it's a, it's a conjunction. It's conjoining two thoughts. It's kind of cool that we don't know what Yahweh said before that. It tells us that Moses had a real inner dialogue with Yahweh going. You know, he, he, he had conversations with the Father and he just started writing from the and in this point. And uh, that's something that's available to each one of us. Um, a little later in this parasha, you remember the 70 elders? Um, the, the Spirit was poured out on them and they prophesied, but two of the guys, for whatever reason, didn't come out. They were still in the camp in their tents and, um, and they were prophesying too. And Joshua was worried. He thought maybe there was a, a rebellion afoot. Maybe someone was going to try and challenge Moses as, as God's prophet in the nation or whatever. And, and, and Moses' response is so reflective, I believe, of, of Messiah's heart and, and of what, what he has for each of us. He said, I wish that all of God's people were prophets. I wish that God would just put his spirit on everybody. It's a bummer that, it's a bummer, you know, that was a nice wish, but a bummer that that's just not possible, that that can't come true. Beat me out if you think that's, if I'm wrong. It's wrong. Yeah, it's very true. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Paul, for instance, said in Corinthians, you can all prophesy. You know, Paul said very, very specifically, you know, uh, you should desire the endowments of the Holy Spirit, but especially to prophesy. So that is something for you, that's something for me. Prophecy isn't like, it doesn't have to be wild, charismaniac, glitz and glamour, whatever. Some of us have had bad experiences with spiritual things or prophetic gifts or whatever. Prophecy is hearing God's voice and communicating His Word in the power of His Holy Spirit. That can be a very solid thing. It can be a very, it can be, it can be a very simple thing too. It's not something that someone has to do at the front with a microphone. It's not something that you have to be dressed up for. You can be in a conversation with a friend over the phone and totally be functioning in that capacity and just speaking from the Father's heart to that person, sharing His word with them or a coworker or whatever. Eh? So uh, let's really break out in that area. Let's let's continue to let Yeshua make that wish of Moses come true in our midst. Yeah, the spirit of prophecy always testifies of Yeshua. That's right. I love that uh, about the spirit and how about how he works. Yeah, um, in uh, Numbers chapter nine, verse thirteen, there are a couple of things in here. They're almost like uh, premonitions of some chapters in church history. And in Numbers nine thirteen, uh, it says, "Okay, so if you have a guy who is clean, like." Uh, ritually clean so that he could do the Passover, but he's just lazy and he just doesn't do it for whatever reasons or whatever. He just doesn't care, whatever his motivations may be. Um, 
He always says, um, that person shall be cut off from his people because he didn't present the offering of Yahweh at its appointed time. That man will bear his sin. So God is saying, my appointed times are serious. I, and, and I hope that my people take them seriously. And uh, he actually viewed it as a sin if someone was just lazy and didn't bother. But did you notice what he said the consequences would be? That person would be cut off from his people. And you know, that's really true. When you look at the appointed times, when you look at the, uh, the festivals that, that the God of Israel has given to all of his people in the body of Messiah, when we do those, there, there, there are times when we connect with him, when we connect with each other. It's like the opposite of being, quote, cut off or, 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 or uh, separated or marginalized. Eh? And um, when, when we read church history, the early believers... <coughs> They, they loved the Jewish people. They had that section that was Jewish. They, they were aligned with Israel. And uh, the first couple centuries of church history is very sad. When you read about how anti-Semitism came in, um, the church was flipped until it was controlled by uh, Gentile people who did not like Jews. And um, I, I could give you lots of quotations and things that some of the early church fathers said. It's, it's, one, of the, it's one of the sad chapters in church history. And, and I believe that one of the reasons that that happened was because God's people quit doing the stuff that God gave to his people Israel. You know, so when you quit doing Passover, you will be much more readily be disconnected from your heritage in, in Israel. You will much more quickly say, yeah, the Jewish people, they're over there, and I'm over here, and uh, we're not one. You know, things like that, eh? And so, just on an action level, um, let's continue to prioritize learning about the Moedim, God's appointed times, and, uh, and celebrating them as a community, as the Spirit leads, in a way that exalts Yeshua, because that's, that's our heritage in the body of Messiah, whether we be from Jewish or Gentile backgrounds. And um, that, that, that will bring a level of unity to the body of Messiah that we have not had in 18 or 1900 years. So that's part of our vision as a congregation. Um, I really love 9 verse 14 too. Um, he talks about the ger. Ger is a Hebrew word. It's translated here as alien. That's not talking about like like flying around in a space shuttle. Alien there means someone who comes in from another country. He says, you know what? All these idols that we've been worshipping are garbage and the God of Israel, that country over there, he's the real God and I'm getting in on the deal with him. I want to enter into a covenant relationship with him. And so Israel would have people that would come from, from foreign nations and they would move into Israel just to be part of that community life and be part of the worship of the God of Israel. And uh, today, maybe we don't move to Israel to experience that, but we do move on an inner, in, on an inner level. Maybe, uh, maybe one of the most popular terms to express that idea would be being grafted in. If you're grafted in, then you're, like, you're kind of like a gear. You're kind of like an alien who's coming from the nations and uh, you're, you're like Ruth saying, your people will be my people and your God will be my God. Have any of you guys encountered someone who, who, who wanted to say the, the second half of that? Your God will be my God. It's like, you know, I'll take, I'll take God. I'll take the God of Israel. But man, the Jewish people, they're messy. They have problems. So, you know, I'll just leave that part out of the equation. It's the whole thing, right? Like, the Holy Spirit is raising up a generation of Ruths 
in the body of Messiah who will say, your people will be my people. I will love the Jewish people and pray for them. I will support the Messianic Jewish movement and I will let Yeshua make us one and your God will be my God. That's the idea. And uh, so we see that with the gear, this, uh, the alien. And uh, here's the cool thing here. It says in, ni- in Numbers 9.14, If an alien, a gear sojourns among you and observes the Passover to Yahweh according to the law of the Passover and according to its rules, so he shall do. You shall have one law, both for the alien and for the native of the land. So the father treats his children equally, Everyone's on level ground, and we have a common heritage. Is is something that we can get out of that. So, you know, if someone says, well, you know, Passover, that's a Jewish thing. And I'm not Jewish, so I don't know if that's really for me. You know? And, and that's, that's, a, that's a valid concern, really. Because the Jewish people have been doing Passover, and it isn't very normal for people from a non-Jewish background to do Passover. But what the Bible says is, when you come to faith in Yeshua, you're part of the commonwealth of Israel. You're part of the children of Abraham, and there's one law for everybody. So Passover is for you too. You're part of the family. Welcome to the family is, is the idea there. Um, this is kind of crazy. Like the last, okay, most of the book of Exodus, or the last half, and then all of the book of Leviticus happens while Israel is parked at Mount Sinai. That's the context. They're at Mount Sinai. They're camping out. They've got it pretty easy. Food shows up every morning. You just go outside and you gather your breakfast cereal off the ground, basically. I don't know. It would be kind of... You'd think you'd get a lot of sand in your tea, like a lot of grit and sand in your breakfast cereal. Like, you just go pick it off the ground. I don't know how they did that. But um, they had it pretty easy. There was a big fountain of water. And uh, in, in, in the meantime, they were building the tabernacle and Yahweh was giving the Torah to Moses. And uh, finally, in this parasha, they actually get moving. They actually get moving on their way to uh, on the way to Canaan. It says in uh, Numbers chapter ten, verse eleven. Now in the second year, that is after the Exodus, in the second month, on the twentieth of the month, the cloud was lifted from over the tabernacle of the testimony. Can you imagine? The kids would be out playing in the morning, and they'd be like, they look over because the cloud has been there since they built the tabernacle. They're like, "Yep, there's the always presence. He's there." I would feel really good to know. But that day it was moving. It was like, oh no, he's leaving. What's going on? I don't know, maybe some of the kids are kind of scared, eh? But that was the sign that it was time to uh, pack up the tent and uh, put everything in the back of the truck and uh, get ready to go. That was, the, uh, that was the sign. So it says in verse 12, The sons of Israel set out on their journeys from the wilderness of Sinai. Then the cloud settled down in the wilderness of Paran. And I want to look at that. I want to look at that concept with you for a moment because I think it's applicable to us as disciples of Yeshua and, and as communities. Um, a little bit earlier, in Numbers chapter 9, from verse 15 to the end of the chapter, it, uh, it talks about how this, this cloud was over the tabernacle in the daytime, and it was like a big pillar. I wonder how high it was. How many stories high? It might have been like a skyscraper cloud. Like huge. Like you'd look up and be like, wow, that's a really big cloud. Um, evidence, some, of the, some passages suggest it might have actually been like a big cloud umbrella over the whole camp in the daytime. If you've been in the Middle East, you'll know that it's baking hot, especially in the summer. Uh, a cloud would be a real blessing. 
Um, so, so evidence suggests that um, in the nighttime it was like a fire. And, uh, and it says a couple things about, about the cloud and its emotions that are notable. So let's have a look at that. Um, I want to point out four things specifically to you guys about that. Uh, firstly, Israel was mobile not stationary. So they were on the move. They were, they were hiking, they were camping, and they were going somewhere. They, uh, they hadn't arrived there. So Israel, they lived in temporary camps. They, they didn't live in a city. Um, that's, ver- that's very true of us also. In the book of Hebrews chapter 11, it talks about how we're all like travelers and we haven't arrived at the eternal city yet. I mean, even Jerusalem. Jerusalem is a beautiful city and... Uh, and it's very it's 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 critical in terms of spiritual uh, strategy, but the scripture says that when Yeshua comes back, there's going to be a new Jerusalem that descends out of heaven to where? To planet Earth, and that's our eternal that's our eternal place where we're going to live. So you know it's it is true that we're gonna we're gonna be in heaven, but the other half of the equation that sometimes they don't tell you is. That doesn't mean you're going to fly away into the sky. Heaven is coming to planet Earth. The kingdom of heaven is coming to planet Earth. God is going to renew the heavens and the earth. And the new Jerusalem is going to be where you are going to be living forever. So, get ready. You're going to be living in Jerusalem. Think about real estate in Jerusalem. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, You know, check it out. Check out Revelation chapters 20, 21, 22. See if that's what it says or not. Um, that is not our human nature. Um, medical term homeostasis. Does anyone know what that means? Stay the same. Yeah, staying the same. Basically, oh, there, there's a good and a bad side to homeostasis. The good side is it keeps your heart beating. That's a good thing. Uh, it keeps you breathing even when you're sleeping. Can you imagine if you fall asleep and you'd stop breathing? You'd be like, oh man, that would not be fun. So, you know, like homeostasis is our friend in one way. But the bad side of homeostasis is we like to create our little worlds and then, and then like control them and make sure they never change. We don't like change. Do you guys notice that? I don't know. Change is really traumatic for some people. It's like, I just want to kind of get my little routine, have my schedule, and if anybody interrupts it, I'm going to be really mad. It's kind of the idea. That's the bad side of homeostasis. In the religious world, we also sometimes suffer from homeostasis. You know, we, we get our way of doing things, and after a while, we just do it that way. Maybe three generations later, they're still doing it, and they don't even know why they're doing it anymore. And maybe, maybe it has nothing to do with God anymore, and it's just tradition. Well, this is just the way we've always done things. That's, that's terrifying. So that's the, that's the really ugly side of, of homeostasis. And, um, you know, Israel in the wilderness, they were on their toes. They did not have to worry about homeostasis, although they were suffering from it. Did you notice that? They're like, oh, we just want to go back to Egypt. Why couldn't things just be the same the way they used to be? You know, so um, that's something we can learn. Um, number two, we can, we can notice that Israel followed the cloud. What was with the cloud? What did it symbolize? Absolutely. Like, Yahweh was personally in that cloud. You, you wouldn't want to wander into that cloud. That, yeah, so it symbolized his presence. That was, that was him. That was where he was in a very personal way. And you'll notice that the cloud didn't just sit there. The cloud was mobile. The cloud was on the move. It's like, we have a living Elohim 
who's on the move. He doesn't just sit there. Although he does have a throne and he is seated on the throne. So there are both sides to, uh, to that picture. Um, so when the cloud would move, Israel would move. I, I think some, some, some chapters in church history are the story of the cloud moving and uh, believers not moving. Basically, it's like, wow, the cloud is here and he's providing for us and we had, he, he, he did something fantastic and we're just going to build a city right here in the wilderness around this. And then his cloud moves on. He says, guys, you haven't arrived yet. I still have more that I want to teach you. There, there's more that I have for you. I'm taking you somewhere. But we've built a city and we need to stay here is often the, the response. And, and you know, sometimes, sometimes it's the story of denominations Sometimes a denomination will be a city that was built in the wilderness around where the cloud was several centuries ago. Um, so, you know, where let's say you, you, may, you may walk into a church and you say, so what's God been up to here? And they'll say, well, 40 years ago, this is what God did here. 50 years ago, um, this is what God did in North Battleford, for example. Um, 100 years ago, this is what God did in, in um, the Pentecostal movement. And it's like, that's good. But what is he doing right now? Well, you know, we kind of have a routine and the way we do things. And, but th- and this is what he did a couple of generations ago. And that was really exciting. And meanwhile, the kids in that church are totally bored. Or God is just not a reality to them. And that's, th- that's the bad side of ho- spiritual home- homeostasis. So, you know... As, as an individual, I have a commitment. I want to follow Yeshua wherever he goes. I want to be in the thick of what he's up to. And uh, you know what? I don't care what label that goes under. It doesn't matter to me if it has a name or not. It's about him. It's about what he's doing. And that's why I'm involved in the Messianic Jewish movement because I see that he's doing something. I see that he's going to do a lot more and I have a vision for that. So that, that's, that's our heartbeat as a community. Not to just plunk down and build a little city on something that he did but to follow him closely, to stay mobile, and to remain flexible. Yeah, homeostasis would be like being in a coma. Some, there's some days when I feel like I'm in a coma. You guys ever have days like that? Have you noticed that about us as humans? Like we really, some of us especially, we really like our routines, right? It's like you have a routine, and you'll go through the whole week, you'll go through weeks and weeks, and you just do stuff the same. And you know what? For some of us, we love that. It's really nice and comfortable. You don't have to think too hard. I don't know. Maybe that is like living in a coma sometimes. You know, there's a place for routine, right? Schedule is important. But homeo mean what? Doesn't that indicate health? I think in that case it means like one. It means one. So like homeostasis, stasis is your state of being. And homeo being one like, so that would be uh, like one state. Staying in a uniform state, uh, essentially. No change. Yeah, no change. What's that? Like homogenized milk. Homogenized milk, yeah. Or, or you know, uh, another term is the homosexual uh, orientation. It's the same idea. Um, now, okay, third thing here that I really like is it says in uh, Numbers chapter 9, verse uh, 23, last verse, check it out. It says, At the command of Yahweh they camped, and at the command of Yahweh they set out. And uh, the Hebrew there for at the command of is literally on the mouth of. On the mouth of Yahweh they camped, and on the mouth of Yahweh they, they set out. Um, I'll teach you the Hebrew for that, because I love teaching Hebrew. All is on. Everybody say all. Um, 
The word for mouth is pay. Everybody say pay. If you're saying the mouth of, then you say p. So all p Yahweh is how it would be in the Hebrew, right? So it says all p Yahweh. On the mouth of Yahweh they would camp, and on the mouth of Yahweh they would set out. And that was the modus operandi for the people of Israel. What he says is what we do. The direction from his mouth is is where we go. And um, may that be may may that be for us also. You know, as individuals, as families, and as as a, as a congregation. And then, fourthly, and uh, finally, in uh, this little list of of the, the modus operandi of Israel, it's it finishes by saying in verse twenty three, they kept Yahweh's charge according to the command of Yahweh through Moses. So. Yahweh was speaking, and they were moving on his command, but he did, in some instances, use human leadership to help give that direction. And uh, that can be a critical question for us when, um, when we have decisions to make, uh, if we're considering restructuring anything as a community, when we're talking about where we're going to go, what is he saying? And uh, there, there, are, there, are, there are people in this room I, that, that, that the Father communicates to you in dreams, um, there, you know, there are people in this room, and, and you hear very clearly from him. And I want to know what he's saying. You know, if there are decisions to make, I, I want to know who is he talking to, and what is he saying. So uh, let's keep our ears really open in that area too. Chapter twelve. Let's look at um, Numbers chapter twelve together. Also, did you guys notice there are a lot of great stories in this parsha? We read a little more of the Parsha than usual just because there are a lot of great stories and they're really engaging and some of them are kind of funny and some of them are terrifying like this one with, uh, with Miriam uh, getting leprosy. And uh, I, I want to look at this, this chapter with you. Um, there, there, this, there's some things in here that really hit me personally this week as I was, as I was studying it. I want to share that with you. Um, there are five things that we can take note of in Numbers chapter 12. It's the story about like this sibling fight, right? Moses and Aaron, they gang up on Moses. Uh, they don't like his wife. And, uh, and so they kind of like make up this really spiritual thing whereby they kind of, kind of jump him. And, uh, and thankfully, the big Abba, the father in the family, intervenes. And he's like, you three, to my room right now. We're going to have a talk. And, and he, 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 he works it out, eh? I, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, of course, but I don't, that's what I think. If I think of, like, the dad when three kids get in a fight, it's like, you three, we're going to go talk right now. Right. So um, anyway, let's, let's, let's have a look at that. Um, the, in Judaism, this is kind of the, the chapter on what you would call Lashon Hara. Um, what is the Hebrew word uh, Lashon or Lashon? Your tongue, that's correct. It's your tongue. It's, uh, it means like what you say, basically. Uh, what is hara? The, the bad. bad. That's right. Ra is bad. So, I don't know. Have any of you ever had a really bad meal? Maybe it was spoiled food or something and you didn't realize. Or, or like milk? Have any of you ever had, like, taken a chug of milk and realized it like, went really, really bad? Okay, that's raw, okay? It's like, ah, raw, raw. Okay, so anyway, Lashon Hara means like the bad tongue or, or evil speech in general, right? And um, in, in Judaism, uh, they point out that basically Moses and Aaron were slamming Moses. They were, they were speaking negatively about him. 
uh, instead of working stuff out with him, they were publicizing it. And, uh, and so in Judaism, the story of, 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 of Miriam is kind of the story of what not to do, basically. So I want to have a look at that with you because this is about more than just speech. Uh, this is about me. This is about each one of us. Uh, you'll notice... So I'll point out five things to you here. Um, You'll notice that Miriam was struck with leprosy. What does leprosy look like? What does leprosy do? Uh, Leprosy is an an ugly disease that eats away at you. It it, it distorts it distorts your physical features. It it disfigures your face. It makes you it makes you really ugly. And I, I, I pray for lepers. I, I, I really care about them. But th- this is what the disease does. And um, Miriam was struck with this. C- what, what could the Creator be saying um, in, in doing that? Here's, here's what I get out of it. Um, like, Miriam being struck with leprosy was a physical expression of her spiritual state. So there was something ugly in Miriam's heart, and it came out of her mouth, and Yahweh temporarily struck her with leprosy to say, this is a look at what your heart looks like. This is, how I, this is how I see the way you're talking right now. Wow. I'll, just, I'll repeat that for our live stream people. So basically, yeah, leprosy makes you numb, and that's why a lot of the disfigurement happens, and that's very true when we are numb to God's teaching and what he's saying. I think also numb to each other. You know? I, I, I think I, I've observed that it's easiest to be numb to the people we're closest to. We take them for granted family members, you know, whatever, people like that. So that's, that's an excellent insight, absolutely. So, you know, when I look at my own life, I, I look at how I have treated some people and, um, and, and different things. I, I can see I have had areas in my heart and I continue to have areas in my heart that are leprous. Like areas where I'm numb, areas where I'm really ugly, areas where I just, I'm disfigured. You know, my soul face is distorted. It is not reflecting Yeshua's face very well at all. You know what I'm saying? And um, that will con- I will continue to have moments like that for the rest of my life and until Yeshua comes. But that's something that, you know, that I can acknowledge about myself. And um, the good news is Yeshua came to change us from the inside out. He came to heal us of our, our soul leprosy. And uh, he came to restore us to the image of Elohim make us like him again so that you know we talk like him we treat people like him our faces reflect his countenance um, that's the idea that's the good news um, that's the first thing uh, secondly you'll notice that Mo- like uh, Aaron and Miriam had some issues with Moses' wife this was a personal thing and they didn't just out and say you know Moses we really hate your guts for marrying this particular person you know, you totally married outside the Jewish family and we're mad at you. Or, and I'm kind of making that up. But whatever the case may have been, they said, they, they, did you notice they, um, they cloaked their personal issues in um, spiritual speech? It's like they had this ugliness and instead of saying, God, I've got a really ugly attitude. I need to let this go. They hid it in, in, in like religiosity. And you know what? I do that. We do that. It's really easy. Sometimes we'll like have inner ugliness, leprosy or whatever. Instead of being like, God, this is gross. I pray that you change me. It's kind of like, no, no, no. And we make up some religious front for it. You know? Yeah. So that's the, that's the second thing. Um, what would it have looked like if, Mo, if, if like Miriam and Aaron had just said, I've got some ugliness here and I'm just going to let it go. I'm not going to harbor it. I'm just going to let it go. 
You know, that, that story would have turned out differently. It would have gone a little easier, especially for Miriam. Um, number three, you'll notice that Miriam... Did you notice that only Miriam got hit with leprosy? Why didn't Aaron? Aaron was in on this thing too. What's the deal? Um, if, you, if you do a study of Aaron... It seems that he was a relatively neutral person. Um, he could be swayed by popular opinion. Uh, maybe he would go along with the crowd. It's hard to tell. Uh, an example would be the golden calf. Everyone's like, you know, Moses, we don't know what happened to the guy. Um, make us a god, Aaron. And there's like, okay, give me your gold earrings. And he makes a golden calf. It's like, whoa, that didn't take much to change his opinion. And I mean, Jewish tradition suggests that they were threatening to kill him on the spot, so he went along with it. But whatever the case may be, what it would appear to be is that Miriam instigated the thing, and then Aaron went along with it. That can be a challenge to us, you know? For those of us who are maybe more neutral, be careful that you don't become an Aaron who just goes along with popular opinion or with what the majority are saying. Think for yourself hear from the Holy Spirit for yourself. And, uh, yeah, that's, that's a lesson from, from, from Aaron Forrest. What's that? Is it because she was a leader? She was yeah. an instigator? Yeah, it, Miriam definitely was. She was a leader on a national level. She was a prophetess, um, and uh, she really loved leading all the ladies in Israel and, and like, playing their tambourines and dancing. So... Um, Okay, number four, let's see what God's response was to this whole situation. I'll, I'll, I'll show you five things about that. Uh, firstly, in Numbers 12, verse 2, it says, Yahweh heard. That's the first thing. So he was listening in. Miriam and, and Aaron were saying some ugly things about their bro, and God was listening. I know there are some days where like, I need to remind myself that God is listening right now to what I'm saying about so-and-so. Or Yeshua, who passionately loves this person and died on their behalf, is listening to whatever I'm going to say. Well, I'm really mad about whoever, you know? And, um, or let's just say in, in my marriage, Yeshua is listening to how I talk to my wife. And you know, some days I need to be reminded of that. It's like, my wife has a father, and he's right there in the room, and I better be careful how I talk to his daughter. The idea. So that's the first thing. Um, number two, in verse nine, it says, Yahweh was angry. This is interesting. God actually has emotional responses to how we act and treat people. Um, what can we learn from that in terms of, of us? If you ever hear someone like really bashing someone or speaking negatively about them, spreading Lashon Hara, even if what they're saying is true, that is the kind of thing where the Creator Himself has, He gets angry about it. And it's okay to be angry about that in, in a righteous way. You know? So if someone is like, blah, 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 and they're bashing someone, get mad about it. And then let's see what else. Because you don't want to just get mad, right? Um, in verse 6, it says that Yahweh confronted them. He says specifically in, in verse, uh, verse 8, why weren't, you afra- why weren't you afraid to speak against Moses? So, you know, he, he heard what they were saying. He, he was mad about it. And he said, why are you doing that? And so, you know, if, in, uh, in the body of Messiah, in relationships, this is something that we can do too. Just say, stop. Why are you talking like that about that person? You are totally dishonoring that person. You know, why don't you go to that person and work through your issues with them in person? 
And you know what? It's the hardest thing to do because we're Canadians and we're super polite and we're so nice and we hate to ever like confront anyone. And if we're emotional, we often don't want to show it, especially if we're males. But this is something that I believe we can learn from our father. So uh, let's, let's continue looking at this. Um, number four, this is scary. This, is, uh, this was the result of it in verse nine. Uh, so the anger of Yahweh burned against them and he left. And it says the cloud withdrew from over the tent. So, you know, when we, treat, when we relate to each other on a human level, and we don't look at each other through Yeshua's eyes and with love, that is probably the best way to drive his presence away. It, it makes the Holy Spirit really uncomfortable when we do that. It says he, he left. Ouch, eh? So that's something that we can, that we can take note of. Um, if you have someone in your life who is constantly speaking evil about other people uh, and you have confronted them on it and they don't stop because they're so convinced that they're right, there's a point when you just have to leave. That might mean ending the conversation and hanging up the phone. It might mean ending that email thread. It might mean just discontinuing your friendship with that person until they're open to changing. Uh, that's, the, that's the fourth thing that we learned from this chapter. And then the fifth thing, and uh, this, is, this is something that happens more on a community level, in verses 10 to 15, uh, we, have a, we have an Abba who disciplines his children. And uh, he's a good Abba in that regard. And uh, he disciplined them. He actually struck Miriam with leprosy for a solid week. That was, uh, that was not fun for her. That was like a spanking. And... Um, we have a father who will spank us sometimes. And um, you know what? There, there are people, if you have people in your life, again, who are just really negative, hypercritical, and they can't stop talking badly about other people, uh, there's a time for discipline. And that, that you, don't do that on, you don't do that as an individual. You know, you can, you can come and confront someone on an individual level. But um, if that continues, then you should go to your congr- an elder in your congregation or your congregational leadership, and you should say, this is what's happening. This person won't stop. And uh, there's a place in the body of Messiah for a congregational leadership to step in at that point and say, you need to stop, or you're not welcome here anymore. It, it's, it's discipline. And uh, you can see that in this chapter. Um, I'll give you an example of that actually from one of Paul's letters in a Second Timothy chapter two, verses sixteen and seventeen. Um, he said, "Avoid worldly and empty chatter, for it will lead to further ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene." Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus. Um, that term for gangrene—that's it's a it's a related term for leprosy. All right, so like leprosy is highly contagious. Uh, gangrene can spread. Same idea there. So you, you notice three things. Um, firstly, Paul just says, avoid it, Timothy. Just like, just stay away from stuff like that. Uh, secondly, he says it spreads, it's, it's contagious. And then thirdly, Paul actually names the guys who are responsible for that. He says, Paul, these specific guys are sick and just stay away from them. Watch out for them. Right? And, and there's a place for that on a congregational level. And um, I don't think we're you know, I don't feel like we have any situations where that applies, but we're laying foundation as a community here in our first couple of years, so that's something I just want to, uh, want to uh, explain. And then here's the fifth thing, and this is, this is ending on a high note. Um, Moses, I love this, Moses, who's a picture of Yeshua in Numbers 12, 13, he prays for his sis. And it's one of the simplest prayers in the Bible. Um, he just says, God, please heal her. 
So, you know, that's, that's the final thing. If you have dealt with people or dealing with people who are speaking badly about you, or if you have someone who's, you know, who's doing this, don't just confront them or be mad or whatever. Pray for them. Yeah, because you know what? We're all dealing with some degree of leprosy in our hearts. We all have ugliness in us. We're all on the same... We're like on equal footing with this, eh? So pray for his healing. Pray for his healing for, for that person, for anyone that they may have damaged, etc. Yeah. And uh, I love that. I love how Moses' prayer was simple. It was like in Hebrew... Here, I'll, I'll share with you in Hebrew because it's really cool in Hebrew. Uh, he uses the short, short form of God. He just says El. Everybody say El. And then he says, na, uh, you know, hoshana, it means please save or save right now. So he, he uses that word na, so he says, el na, it's like, God please, rafa, which means what? Heal. Heal. God please, rafa, and then he says it again, na, please. So actually he says na twice, and then the last word he says is la, which means her, right? So he says, um, here, I'll say each word in Hebrew and then you say it in English. El, na, which means? Please. Please. Rafa. Yeah. Heal. Na. Please. please. La. Her. her. So he says, God, please heal. Please her. You know, it's like, wow, Moses cared. You know, he was, just, he was just on the brunt of, I don't know, some meanness, but he cared. And he prayed for healing. That's what we can do. Let's look at uh, Second Thessalonians for a couple minutes here. Yeah, they're, they're, um, we're looking at the whole book of Second Thessalonians, so let's just settle in for the next hour. Just kidding. We'll just look at it for like, I don't know, five minutes or something. Um, maybe I'll just, I'll just um, point one thing out to you here. Okay, actually two things, sorry. The, the context of Thessalonians, um, okay, this was a damage control letter. It was the second letter that he wrote because there were some issues there. Um, there were like, there were um, three, three deals going on. These guys were really persecuted as a community and it was hard for them. Um, they were going through some real changes. Uh, secondly, in the beginning of Second Thessalonians, we, uh, we see that like someone was bringing a message that was supposedly prophetic um, or someone had brought a forged letter that was supposedly from Paul, but it wasn't, saying that the day of the Lord had come already. And I don't know what the implications of that were. Maybe they missed it or something. So, I mean, these guys were really persecuted. They were freaking out because they didn't know what was really going on. And um, then also, um, there were some people in that congregation who weren't working, who were lazy, and who were basically freeloading off the community. So this is what Paul was dealing with, eh? And um, that's, that's the main point of this letter. And... Um, in First, First Thessalonians chapter one verse eight, this is something Genevieve and I were were discussing, and I just I'll throw it out there to you also. He um, he 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 describes Yeshua coming back with like really powerful angels in flaming fire, and then it says that he's going to deal out retribution, which is like when you get repaid to your face for the evil you've done. Um, to those who don't know God and to those who don't obey the gospel of our Master Yeshua. And I just, he really hit me as I was reading that. Those who don't obey the gospel. Like, 
I, I don't know, I, I, that hasn't really been the understanding of the gospel that I, I, I've had, even coming from an evangelical background. I think about the gospel as like something that I, you know, that I, I give mental assent to, uh, maybe something that I believe. But for me, it really hit me that the gospel isn't just something to be, it's something to be obeyed. Like the gospel demands obedience. You know, it's like life change. And so that's something Genevieve and I have been discussing, and I'll just throw the question out there to you. What does that look like to obey the gospel? You know, could it involve preaching, really like talking about Yeshua to people as he gives opportunities? Could it involve um, making disciples of them and immersing them in his name and teaching them to do the stuff that Yeshua taught us? I, I, I think so. Um, what else does obeying the gospel mean? I think a lot of things. So that's something that I've been, um, I've been thinking about. Um, 2 Thessalonians 2, uh, Paul says, Okay, guys, don't worry. The day of the Lord hasn't come yet. Um, the end hasn't happened, and you didn't miss it somehow. Um, oh, yeah, man, timely, eh? Okay, yeah, it's May 21st. Uh-huh. You, you guys are all aware of that, hey? The ministry saying that... Yeah. Exactly. Okay, so here's, here's Paul's response to that ministry also then. Wow, this is really cool. Um, he says in verse 3, Guys, don't let anyone deceive you. It's not going to come until the apostasy happens first and the man of lawlessness shows up, is revealed. So basically, this is the anti-Messiah figure. So these guys were freaking out because they thought Yeshua came back and somehow they missed it or something. The end had happened. And he's saying, Guys, the apostasy has to happen first. The anti-Messiah has to show up and do his thing. Uh, that's, that's the first thing he says, right? Um, now, you know, when it comes to eschatology, like our understanding of how things are going to happen in the end, we have different views, and that's cool. I'll, I'll share with you a couple of my personal thoughts, and if you have slightly different views, um, that's fine. Um, the, I think um, there, there, there's the understanding of this that's pretty popular in the evangelical world, dispensational uh, theology, which basically is that there's going to be like, Yeshua's going to come back, and there'll be a secret rapture of all the believers on the planet, and then after that the Great Tribulation will happen, and the Antichrist will do his thing, and Israel will somehow come to faith, and then there'll be kind of like another coming of Jesus, almost like a third coming where he comes publicly this time. I think that's kind of roughly the idea of dispensationalism. Correct me if I'm wrong. That's kind of what I've, what I've gathered from the books I've read. And um, I don't know. I, I have to be honest with you. I, I don't agree with that. If, if any of you here um, believe that, I'm, you know, again, um, eschatology isn't like the center of what we believe. Yeshua is where we're at as a congregation. But I'll just, I'll just share with you how I have a hard time reconciling that with the Second Thessalonians 2. Paul says here, the end isn't going to happen until... The anti-Messiah comes in the big falling away. He makes it sound like the Thessalonian believers are going to be there to see it, that we as believers are going to be there to, uh, to, to see those things. Um, also, a di- dispensational theology, something that I don't understand is uh, in verse 7, he says that there's the restrainer. Something is re- He who is restraining will do so until he's taken out of the way, and then the lawless one, like the Antichrist, will be revealed. And uh, in, in dispensational theology, the, the idea is that's the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is keeping the Antichrist from going 
public and doing his thing. And so when Yeshua comes back and the secret rapture happens, the Holy Spirit will be withdrawn from planet Earth. And then the Antichrist will basically just have run of the planet. And uh, somehow Israel is going to be saved in there. See, the, pro- the, the, the hesitation I have with that idea is if the Holy Spirit is withdrawn from planet Earth, then nobody's going to be saved after that. Which means Israel's hooped. Because you cannot come to faith in Yeshua without the Holy Spirit. It is solely the Holy Spirit through which we come to faith in Yeshua, we're convicted of our sins, and we experience regeneration. So, you know, if that's the case, then basically Israel gets the really, really bad end of the stick here. And um, so, you know, I I have some hesitations with that, uh, to be honest. Um, On a practical level, our job today, though, is to love Yahweh and love each other and to continue praying, preaching, bringing the gospel to the people around us. And uh, you know what? Just be ready for whatever happens. If we're staying spiritually alert and we're doing our mission today and living every day like it's our last, then you know what? It's going to be good. And, uh, you know, hopefully we, we will also be psychologically prepared in the event that we do encounter persecution or in the event that Yeshua believers are shut out of a global economy or something like that. It's good to be psychologically prepared for that, in my opinion. Okay, I'll just, let's just finish this on a, on a practical level. Um, Paul said, okay, this, the spirit that's going to be behind the anti-Messiah, it's already out there, and it is very active. So that means whatever that's going to be in the future, we are battling that spirit today. It is already at work. So maybe I'll just, I'll just leave you with a couple of practical things that can help us like safeguard ourselves against that. Um, the anti-Messiah, he's going to be the figurehead in the ultimate manifestation of humanism. Because you'll notice there, like he sets himself up as the ultimate object of worship as a human being. All right? Um, that's basically the ultimate expression of humanism. Humanism says there's no God, and essentially you're God, and uh, you can just worship yourself, uh, self-actualization. There's a lot of humanism in, in psychology and in the Western world. All right? um, he's going to be the figurehead and ultimate manifestation of relativism, which is, again, very active in, our, in the Western world. Everything is relative. Morals are relative. And uh, you basically just have to tolerate everything Unless it, you know, uh, is a fundamentalist. And then you can, don't have to tolerate that. Just kind of inconsistent. And then finally, just like straight out spiritual lawlessness, anarchy. Um, the, the, the Greek term there is anomia. It means being without Torah. It means Torahlessness or lawlessness, eh? So that spirit is out there. And um, yeah, watch out for that. So... Um, here are, a couple, here are a couple of practical things. Um, firstly, Paul said a falling away is going to happen, an apostasy. So if we maintain a passion to be like the early church, to be a biblical church, like, like uh, I really like that term that John uses, then you're going to be much less likely to fall away or to be part of that because you want to stay true to the original. Uh, that's number one. Just stay passionate, study church history, know what the early believers were like, and hold on to that. Um, number two, this dude's going to be a man of Torahlessness, so, hang on to the Torah, dig in, study, apply it to your life, do the stuff. That's going to be a big safeguard for us as communities and as the body of Messiah. Um, number three, he's called the son of destruction. The Hebrew word is Avadon. Everybody say Avadon. Avadon. 
in English it's often abaddon, right? And um, that word means to be lost. It can also mean like to be totally disconnected or really disoriented, eh? Um, that's what this guy's going to bring to planet Earth. That, that's like the delusion that this guy is going to bring to some people in the body of Messiah. Um, so, what's the opposite of that? Know who you are in Yeshua. Maintain a strong connection with Him. And um, don't get disoriented. Have a biblical worldview. Develop a biblical worldview and orientation. That, that, that of course, means being Torah-based. Um, don't let, like, your identity get all wrapped up in other stuff, eh? Three more little things. Uh, number four, this guy, if, if you want signs and wonders, this guy will give you signs and wonders that will blow your mind. Alright? So if you say, that guy's doing signs and wonders, so his, his ministry must be from God. You, you could fall for massive deception in the end of days. Right? Um, I, I, I've, heard, I've heard people saying, I like this. The word doesn't say to follow after signs and wonders. It says that they follow you. So as you're staying true to the word, as you're preaching the gospel, signs and wonders will follow you. And you know what? I, I really cherish true signs and wonders because they're tokens of his presence. They're like kisses from Yeshua, our bridegroom. They're expressions of his love. So, you know, I, I really value that and I desire more of that, even in our midst. But at the same time, don't get too wowed by that stuff. You have to test the message that's coming from a ministry that's having signs and wonders. Are they exalting Yeshua? Are they staying true to the entirety of the word? Yeah, test every spirit. Absolutely. Um, number five in Second Thessalonians um, two verse ten, he says that like all the deception of wickedness is going to come on the people who are being lost because why they didn't receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. So you know. Cultivate a love for the truth. Cultivate a passion for the truth. Ask yourself regularly, is what this person saying true? Is what this media channel saying true? Yeah. Um, that's, that's a huge one. Um, you know, uh, most of us in our community have people that we're praying for on a daily basis that they'll come to faith in Yeshua. That the Father will save them. Um, if, you, if, if, you, if you're not, I encourage you to, to join us in doing that. You know, uh, most of us in this community pray every day for specific people to come to salvation. This is an excellent thing that you can pray for for people. Pray that they will be given a love for the truth. Like an overwhelming love for the truth that will cause them to seek the truth, to cry out for it, to believe the truth when they encounter it in the person of Yeshua and apply it to their lives, eh? So love the truth. Pray for that for for people. And then, um, sixthly, and finally, it says that salvation, our salvation, is through two things. Um, sanctific- in in, um, in um, 2 Thessalonians 2.13, it says our salvation is um, through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. So we can continue to grow in those things also. Because, hey, you know what? Yeshua is in the process of saving me. And there's going to be stuff in our future that we are really going to need him to rescue us from. You know, even as the body of Messiah on planet Earth. So just notice that. Sanctification by the Spirit. That's when the Spirit is working in you and you're like dedicated to his cause. You're separate from garbage that Satan wants you to get sucked into and you're just like staying true to him. That's sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. There again is the truth thing, right? Basically that's like believing the truth. So it's not like you just pray the sinner's prayer, read through the Bible once, and then you're set. 
It's an ongoing thing. Every day, Satan's going to throw lies in your face. He's going to like put deceptive thought patterns through your minds at times. I know I have that sometimes. And it's a daily battle to believe the truth and to encourage each other in the truth. So let's keep going with that. I'll share with you the position of most of the early reformers, like Martin Luther, John Calvin, the men who, who really, who, whose, whose teaching activities basically started the Reformation. Most of them believe that the falling away happened in the two and three hundreds, and that the the crystallization of the Roman Catholic Church was like a major manifestation of that. So most most of the early Protestants believe that the Pope as the head of the Roman Catholic Church, was the man of lawlessness and the Antichrist. You know, I'm not going to say what my opinion is on that, but you know, when you study church history and when you um, compare, let's say, Catholic, some of Catholic theology to the Bible, um, when you compare the practice that's done in, in Catholicism to what God has called his people to in, on a practical level, yeah, you know, um, they, there's a really good case to be made for that position. Does that mean that that was the ultimate um, fulfillment of that prophecy and that there's not going to be any other fulfillments in the future? I don't know, but just just give you that historical blurb. Shalom, I'm Izzy Avraham, and thank you for joining me for this talk. I delivered these messages live during the years I was leading a congregation. They're now hosted by my Hebrew school, Holy Language Institute, at holylanguage.com. If you're interested in the talks I've done since then, or if you'd just like to say thank you for these teachings, become a member at holylanguage.com.